following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10a. All right, we're not going to, we're going to break up uh, verse 4 or verse 10. Uh, between this week and the next sermon. Uh, So 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, and uh, let's begin today by reading verses 4 through 10. The scriptures say, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lusts of uncleanness and despise authority. And uh, we'll we'll stop there for today. You know, this is one of those passages uh, when when I first read through it, uh, maybe it struck you as as a little bit strange and confusing. You know, so, so you're wondering... Why in the world is Peter talking about fallen angels and, and about Noah's generation and, and stuff that, that's very, very old? What's the point? But, but do you ever feel like you're living in Sodom and Gomorrah? Or think about how Genesis 6-5 describes Noah's generation. It says there that then the Lord saw that the wickedness of, of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that sound a little bit familiar to us today? Of course it does. I think we'd probably all agree that the moral decline that our nation has faced over the last couple decades, and and really for quite some time, has been pretty profound, and and it's enough to make your head spin. So so a lot has changed in, in a relatively short period of time. So... So do you ever feel as if evil is going to win the day? You know, or, or do you ever wonder about the future of Christianity? I mean, it, can, can it survive such a hostile world? More specifically, do you ever question your ability to stand for Christ? Your ability to be faithful to the gospel regardless of what may come? Maybe those of you who are parents or grandparents, maybe you fear for the future of your children. Will they be able to stay faithful to Christ? Will, will they stand firm regardless of what may be ahead? So, so what if I told you that this passage we just read answers all those questions? So, so this passage is incredibly relevant for our lives today. So, so in context, so, so I hope you listen up because I, I really think this is, this is an encouraging, a wonderful passage of Scripture. And uh, in context, uh, this passage is intended to substantiate the claim that ends verse 3. So, so verse 3 ends by saying, regarding the false teachers who are influencing Peter's readers, 
that for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. So, so Peter says, God is going to judge these false teachers. They are not going to continue on forever. But, but I'm thinking, you know, it seems like Peter wondered if maybe his readers, the faithful in the church, would question, is that really true? Is God really going to judge them? So in verses 4 through 10, he explains why we can be confident. Not only that God will judge the wicked, but also why we know that he will preserve the faithful. No matter how dark the world may seem, no matter what may come, God will keep his children and he will judge ungodliness. And Peter makes that point in verses 4 through 10 with with what is one very long sentence. So the entire passage we read in in the Greek is only one sentence, and and Peter makes his point with a fairly simple argument. It's it's an if-then argument. So if you look at the passage, verses 4 through 8 give the if. if. If all of these things are true, if God judged this generation, if God did that, if God preserved this righteous man, then the assertion that he wants to make is found in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the days of judgment. So, so the Lord knows how to do what he has determined to do. And, and so I'd like to divide my sermon today in, into two challenges uh, based on that simple grammatical structure. So, so my first challenge is in verses 4 through 8, which is remember God's past works of punishment and preservation. Remember God's past works of punishment and preservation. So, so you may have noticed that, that Peter gives three ancient examples in verses 4 through 8 uh, of how God judges the wicked. And, and then not only that, in the second and third example, he also lists an example of, of how God preserves those who are faithful to him. And remember that all of it, all right, this is important, that, that all of this remembrance of the past is all there to substantiate the assertion in verse 9, that the Lord knows how to punish the wicked and preserve the righteous. So, so the first example he gives is that God judged the rebellious angels. God judged the rebellious angels. So again, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So, so this is one of those verses at first, it seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You know, angels rebelled against God. God, uh, God well, you could say he arrested them, put them in, in jail, and, and ultimately he will judge them someday. But, but where this verse gets a little bit sticky uh, is in identifying what rebellion uh, Peter specifically has in mind. So, so I'll tell you up front that the majority of commentators believe that Peter here is, is draw, drawing on a common tradition in his day that has to do with Genesis chapter 6. So, so keep your finger here, but turn back to Genesis chapter 6. All right? So, so this is the, the story of the flood of Noah. And Genesis 6... Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all, of all whom they chose. 
And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his day shall be one hundred and twenty years. And there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So, so the tradition that was very common in Peter's day, and it was reflected in the apocryphal book, First Enoch, is that Genesis 6 is teaching that, that demons actually came down to earth and married human women and had children with them. And, and these children were a race of, of superhuman giants, all right? And, and so that was a, a very common idea in, in Peter's day. And, uh, and so in response, the tradition goes, is that God uh, uniquely judged these angels and, and bound them and put them in, in, in prison, so to speak, in a way that, that the other angels are not, because, of course, Satan and the majority of demons are active in the world. So, so these particular angels were bound and, and, and put in prison uh, awaiting particular judgment. And, and again, most commentators assume uh, that Peter is drawing on that tradition and, uh, and saying uh, that, that this, in fact, took place. Now, I think it's important to say, and, and that's one of those things, that it sounds really strange to our ears, right? That angels had babies with humans creating superhuman, you know, uh, giants. And Peter here, of course, never specifies uh, what rebellion he has in mind. And there are some, of course, obvious, I think, real problems with this view. And, uh, and in particular, you know, how in the world could angels who have no physical bodies and no DNA have babies with human beings. And Jesus, in fact, says this is not possible in, in Matthew chapter 22. So, uh, so if you want to turn over and, and look at what Jesus has to say, uh, Matthew chapter 22. So, so uh, this is the, the context here is that the Pharisees and Sadducees are, are, are questioning Jesus. They're trying to trip him up. And so the Sadducees ask him uh, about uh, giving in marriage and, and about procreation uh, after the second resurrection, because the Sadducees didn't believe there was any such thing as, as a resurrection. And, and notice how Jesus answers them in Matthew 22, verse 30. He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. So, so Jesus says that when we go to heaven someday, we're not going to get married and have kids. We're going to be like angels. And he says angels don't get married and have kids. So, so I, I, I think that's a real problem, a real problem uh, for, for this view that, that, that Peter is alluding to this tradition in Genesis chapter 6. So I think the better view is that Peter is just simply referring to demons who rebelled alongside Adam, or excuse, excuse me, alongside Satan uh, before Adam's fall, and, and, and that some in particular stood arrogantly against God. You know, they thought that they could stand against God, they thought they could resist God's authority, but, but some of them sinned so egregiously that, that God, it says here in verse 4, cast them down to hell. And today, they are in chains of darkness. And at the final judgment, they will receive the full judgment that they deserve. And the point is very simply that even the most powerful beings that God has created, angels, cannot stand against him. He will judge everyone who sins against his will. So God judged the angels, and then the second example of God's past works of justice 
is that God judged uh, the, the, the Noah's generation while preserving Noah and his family. So God judged Noah's generation while preserving Noah and his family. So, so verse 5 then goes on to say, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now imagine what it must have been like to be Noah. I mean, think about, think about just the, the, the mess. So again, Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. As I said earlier, that sounds a lot like a lot of people today, doesn't it? But think about the fact that that Genesis 6, 8 says, only Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was the only righteous man on the earth. I mean, at least we live in a broken world, but at least we have each other. And there are millions of Christians scattered throughout the globe. But Noah had no one. And that's, I mean, that's the definition of being in a minority, right? You know, so, so imagine, so, so I imagine that, that Noah probably wondered at times. I mean, here he is, the only righteous man on the earth. He looks around, and he probably wondered at times, is righteousness going to completely die out from the earth? Is, is evil going to triumph fully? I imagine if you're Noah, you probably wonder at times, am I going to make it? Am I going to be faithful to the Lord? Am I going to stand for him in such a context? But Peter declares that even in this unimaginably dark time, God was still God. And he intervened in human history, and and he intervened in a way in human history that that will only be replicated one time. When, When God destroys the world entirely at the end of the age... And what did God do? He sent, it says at the end of verse 5, he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. Now talk about a terrifying display. Now just put yourself in the shoes of the people in Noah's day. So, so the scriptures tell us that Noah took 120 years to build the ark. That's a long time, isn't it? 120 years. And I'm sure that for that entire 120 years, Noah had people telling him he was crazy, he was nuts. They're standing outside, you know, why are you building this big boat in the middle of nowhere? You're crazy. But, but our passage tells us that that entire 120 years, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he warned the people over and over and over. You have sinned against God, and, and God is going to judge. And so you need to repent and turn to him. Otherwise, you will be wiped from the face of the earth. And... Uh, but the people, did, did they listen? No, of course not. They didn't listen. They continued to mock. And then after 120 years, Noah, his seven family members, and the animals entered the ark. And then they sat there for seven days. You know, imagine the conversations between Noah and Mrs. Noah. You know, like, how long are we going to sit here, hon? Is this really going to happen? We, we just spent 120 years building this thing. And the people are probably outside, mocking, having a good time. And then Genesis 7, verse 11 says, All the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. And in a flash, it went from Noah's the fool to everyone else's a fool. And God completely wiped that generation from the face of the earth. We think about the fact that eight people 
out of millions died in that flood. It was a powerful display of God's hatred of sin and his power to judge. And 2 Peter chapter 3 is going to tell us that, that it serves as a stark warning that, that a second and even more severe judgment is coming to the world someday. God wiped humanity from the face of the earth once, and he can do it again. And he will do it again. So no matter how strong evil may seem to be, let's never forget that God is always stronger. He is always watching, and he will judge every evil act. But, but what's so incredible is that the story of Genesis 6 through 10 isn't just a story of judgment. It's also a marvelous story of God's grace and faithfulness. Because our text says that God saved Noah, one of eight people. So God saved him. And of course, Genesis 6 verse 8 says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I love that statement because it reminds us that, that, that Noah was not preserved because of his righteousness, because he was a perfect man. And, and, and no, he was saved because he found grace. God was compassionate towards Noah and his family. And, and God makes that point clear after the flood. He says in Genesis 8, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although, notice, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So, so when Noah, there's eight people left on the earth. What is God's evaluation of man? The imaginations of man's heart is evil from his youth. And of course, Noah proved that pretty quickly. Because shortly after the flood, he, he gets himself crazy drunk, and he, he exposes himself in the tent. And, and that story is there to remind us that the flood did not wipe evil from the earth. Men were still sinners, still desperately need, in need of grace. And, and Peter's point is that God's care of Noah provides great assurance for us. Because like Noah, we are broken sinners living in a broken, overwhelmingly evil world. And if I spend all my time focused on everything that's wrong out there, you know, you, you're, you're just obsessed over what's happening in Washington, what's happening in Sacramento. You sit there at night listening to the police scanner about every terrible thing that's happening in our community. You will despair because there is evil everywhere. And if you spend all your time looking at your own heart, thinking about all the sin and brokenness that's there, you're going to lose hope entirely. But, but Peter here says that God is faithful. He will punish sin. And he will graciously preserve me. And I know this because God has proven it. He's already demonstrated his power and his faithfulness. So praise the Lord for the example of Noah. And then the third example of God's past works is that God punished Sodom and Gomorrah while preserving Lot. God punished Sodom and Gomorrah while preserving Lot. So, so verses 6 through 8 then go on to say, and, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. 
So, of course, these verses here uh, jump ahead a few generations to the time uh, of Lot. And, uh, and this is another major demonstration uh, of human depravity, God's justice, and God's marvelous grace. And I think it's worth knowing there's a lot of parallels between the story of, of Noah and, and his generation and, and Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Lot. So, so, first of all, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, biblically speaking, they're the epitome of depravity, aren't they? It's a horrible, horrible place. And our text describes them as ungodly in verse 6. Verse 7 describes Sodom and Gomorrah as being characterized by the filthy conduct of the ungodly. And verse 8 describes them as engaging in lawless deeds. And Genesis chapter 19 fills in a lot of, of, of horrifying details for us. I mean, it really is. I mean, Genesis 19 is one of the most horrifying stories in all of Scripture. And you probably know the story, of course, uh, the angels come to Abraham in chapter 18, they, and, and they tell him that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so Abraham pleads uh, that God would not do so if, if, if he can find even all the way down to 10 righteous people. Well, there's not 10 righteous people. So, so the angels go down into the city, and, and Lot recognizes them right away. And, and what's crazy is that Lot immediately recognizes that these guys need shelter. He is not surprised by what happens that night. He knows these guys need protection because bad things are going to happen to them tonight if they are left alone. And sure enough, Genesis 19, verses 4 and 5 say, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. It's a horrifying, disgusting scene of homosexuality, abuse, perversion. And, and, and what's crazy is, is that this is not just, you know, a few people over here, a few crazies on the side of the culture. Genesis says it was people old and young from every quarter of the city. All of the city was involved in this mob. So imagine what it would be like to live in that context, to live in the midst of such evil. And yet, none of that evil was too big for God. And our text simply says that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. With a snap of his fingers, God wiped Sodom and Gomorrah from the face of the earth. They were no match for him. And it reminds us, that nothing can resist his will. God will judge evil. It will not continue uninterrupted. And yet in contrast, not only did God judge and punish the wicked, verses 7 and 8 turn around to describe God's merciful preservation of Lot. And verses 7 and 8 here, I mean, these are striking verses. And I think they're striking, first of all, uh, just in the sense that we don't generally think of Lot as a righteous man, do we? I mean, we look at him and, and you know, think about what he did. You know, first of all, he moved his family to Sodom. It's not like you know, he got some job transfer that he couldn't be without or, or anything like that. He went there of his own will. And, and of course, when that mob came to his house and, and they were demanding these two men, what did he do? He offered his two virgin daughters to this mob and says to them, do with them what you please. It's, it's a horrifying thing to consider. 
And then later on, after he escaped uh, Sodom years later, his daughters, no one was going to marry them because of how their family had been disgraced. And so they manipulated their dad into committing incest and having sons with them. So, so it's a horrible story. I mean, Lot was far from perfect. He was far from righteous. But, but he never, uh, but, but, but Genesis, but I think it's also worth noting that Genesis also agrees with, with Lot's, or excuse me, with, with Peter's evaluation. You know, so first of all, in chapter 18, when, when God, or excuse me, when Abraham pleads that God would deliver the city for the sake of the righteous, Abraham's clear assumption is that Lot is actually righteous. And, uh, and as well, when the angels go down, they go down and they rescue Lot and they rescue his family. I think it's also worth noting that, um, uh, as well, uh, Genesis 19 assumes that, that Lot did not participate in the evil. He was bothered by the evil. So, so Lot is far from perfect, right? He's not that model saint, but, but he never abandoned the Lord. And I think it's also worth noting that when it says here that, that Lot is righteous, that we always need to remember that, that God's declaration of righteousness is never fundamentally based in me. It's never based in me. Because Romans 3 verse 10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So no one can truly say, I am righteous in and of myself. And in fact, that's even true of, of Lot's uncle, Abraham. Genesis 15 verse 6 says, of Abraham, he believed in the Lord. And he, speaking of God, accounted it or credited it to him for righteousness. So, so Abraham was not declared righteous by God because Abraham was a man of, of perfect character. He had his own faults, his own sins. No, he was declared righteous through the gracious declaration of God. And that's true of everyone who will be saved. So as always, I want to emphasize that the same pattern is true for us. No one will reach heaven through their own righteousness. No one's going to stand before God someday at the judgment, stick out their chest, talk about how righteous and, and holy they are. No. We are all sinners, and that includes you. You are a sinner who stands under the judgment of God. But, but by faith and through the sacrificial death of Christ, that's why Christ died, so, so, that, so that he could take the punishment that we deserve and, and so that we could receive his righteousness. And so if you've never received Christ by faith, you're trying to get to God in your own righteousness, I hope that today you will repent of your sins, believe on Christ, and receive a righteousness that is through grace in Christ. So, so in sum, Lot was God's child. He believed, and he was declared righteous. And, and as such, and it's interesting, you, you go back to 2 Peter 2, uh, Peter mentions how troubled Lot was by his vile surroundings. You know, it says in verse 7 that he was oppressed he was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Do you know that feeling? You know, sometimes the evil in our world feels like a heavy fog that just dampens and darkens everything around us. That's how Lot felt living in Sodom. And then verse 8 adds that Lot tormented his righteous soul from day to day. So, so God's spirit wouldn't let him be comfortable there. He really did feel like an outsider. He felt out of place. He didn't feel at home. 
And, and I think there's a couple of important applications for us uh, to make from this. First of all, you know, first, and this is not Peter's main point, but I do think it's worth emphasizing, is that we can't always see what God is doing in someone's heart. Can't always see what God is doing in someone's heart. And, and, and you see that in Lot, because, because most of us, we would not look at Lot and think, man, that's a righteous man. But, but God tells us that his spirit was at work in him at all times. And, and, and that's an important reminder for us, because sometimes when, when we have children or family members or, or brothers and sisters in the church that, that aren't bearing the fruits of, of, of repentance and godliness that we think they ought to, we, we want to know, are they saved or are they not saved? Are they in Christ or not? And, and we stress and we get anxious about these things. And, and, and I don't think that, that, that we don't make judgments. We, we ought to look at reality, look at the situation, and, and make evaluations based on what we see. But, but that doesn't mean, but, but we also always have to be very cautious and humble about assuming that we actually know fully what is taking place. Because sometimes God's Spirit is at work in ways that we cannot see and that we do not comprehend. But then the second application, and I think more to the point, is that if God could preserve a weak believer like Lot in the middle of Sodom, then then surely God is able to keep us. God's grace is always stronger than every evil culture and every temptation we face. I mean, think about it, folks. If there is a, a more like unlikely guy to persevere, it's Lot. I mean, here he's in the worst culture, and, and, and he's clearly spiritually weak. He's got no Bible. He's got no church. I mean, you look at this guy, and you think, man, he's dead in the water. But God was faithful. God preserved Lot. Now, now I do think it's worth just putting the clarification there that, that the fact that God preserved Lot in the midst of Sodom doesn't mean that we run around and just expose ourselves to every sort of of evil and sick and wickedness there is and just say, well, hey, God's going to take care of me so I can just do what I want to do. Well, the Bible says, flee temptation. And I think it's worth noting that, that yes, God preserved Lot, but, but he endured a lot of heartache because of his unwillingness to flee temptation. His wife died. And, and then later on, his, his, his daughters committed incest with him. He lost everything, humanly speaking, but God still preserved him. And, and, and this fact leads Peter to make explicit the conclusion that he has been driving at towards since the very beginning in verses 9 and 10. So, so in light of everything that God has done in, in the angels and Noah's generation and, and in Lot's generation, he says in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So not only do we need to remember God's past works, the second major challenge is that we need to trust God's future promises. Trust God's future promises. And, and specifically, Peter affirms two important promises that really stand out in, in the three examples he just gave. So first of all, God will preserve his children. God will preserve his children. So, so again, he says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now, now I do think it's worth just noting here that, uh, that the word that's translated temptations here uh, can mean either, either trials that come on us from the outside 
or, or spiritual temptations that come from the inside. And, and, and you just simply have to look at the context to determine primarily what the author has in mind. And I think in this context, Peter is primarily thinking of trials from the outside that oppress us. Because, because that's what happened for, for Lot, and, and that's what happened for Noah. They, they, they were pressed in by, by the wickedness and the evil around them that, that tried their souls. And, uh, and, and so these guys, I mean, think about it. Noah and Lot lived in the midst of dark, hostile evil. And for all intents and purposes, they did it all alone. They didn't have any church family. They didn't have a Bible I mean, they were just sitting ducks. It reminds me, if, you, if, you've, uh, if you've seen Jurassic Park, you know, they, they dropped that little white goat in the Tyrannosaurus Rex pen. And you're like, that guy's a goner. I mean, how in the world is he going to survive? And, and so that's, I mean, that's Lot sitting in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah. How in the world could he possibly survive that context? But he did. He did survive. And God saved Noah, it says in verse 5. Verse 7 says, God delivered righteous Lot. And verse 9 uses the same verb as verse 7 to say that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation or trials. And that is a wonderful promise with just so many applications. So first, I'll just, you know, I open today by mentioning uh, the, the growing hostility that, that there is in our culture towards Christianity. And, and at times it can feel overwhelming, can't it? And, and, and the temptation is, is that somehow we've got to fix that. We, we cannot let this go on. We, we've got to find a way to, to fix America because there's no way we can stand in the, in the culture as it is. We, the gospel will be bound. We, we give in to all sorts of fears. You know, other people, they just go into full retreat. You know, let's go hide in a basement somewhere, get away from the world, and, and, and not touch it at all. Of course, certainly, again, we don't go looking for evil. We should want to preserve righteousness and justice as much as possible. But the Bible commands us to go out in the world with, for the sake of the gospel, to reach people. And, and even while we ought to be suspicious of our own flesh, we should be confident in the Spirit that he will give grace for every challenge. And folks, I don't care how bad our country may get or how bad our world may get. It will never grow so strong, never grow so evil, that it can truly destroy God's people. It will not happen. And so by God's grace, we should be confident in our ability to stand and to thrive even in the darkest of contexts. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And, and, and I'm sure, you know, that was a concern for Peter's readers. You know, they felt like, I mean, there was all this evil outside of them. Of course, Peter's in jail. Uh, very likely, well, he is in jail at this point. And, and, and they're as well dealing with the deception of, of false teachers inside the church. And, and so they're wondering, man, how are we going to go forward? And Peter assures them, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And we should enjoy the same assurance. God will not let us go. He will hold us fast, no matter what may come all around us. You know, but maybe your fears aren't so much about all that is going on out there. Maybe your fears for the future have to do with what's inside your heart. And maybe you, you feel spiritually weak and vulnerable. Maybe you've got some skeletons in your closet from before 
your conversion and, and some sin habits that, that weigh you down all the time. Well, well think about Lot. And he was quite the spiritual weakling, wasn't he? There wasn't much about him that was impressive, but God delivered Lot. And remember that our confidence for eternity is not in us. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It is in the Lord. It is the Lord that knows how to deliver the godly. So God will be faithful to you, no matter how weak you may be. Or maybe your fears have to do with loved ones. I think most Christian parents struggle with fears about what's going to happen to their kids. You know, they've got some problem, they've got sin issues in their lives, and, and, and the temptation is to freak out, you know, and, and oh no, you know, they're, they're going to turn away from Jesus. We fear those things. We, we do the same with, with brothers and sisters in the church. I know that's a, and it's a constant struggle as a pastor. It's really hard not to be anxious for the spiritual health of God's people. But what a blessing it is to know that we can trust the Spirit. God loves his children more than we possibly can imagine. And Jesus promised in John chapter 10 that he will not lose any of his sheep. He will not lose one of them. He will be faithful to his own. So so trust the Lord. Trust the Lord that he will keep his children. And then the second big promise in this passage is is, is that God will punish the ungodly. God will punish the ungodly. So, so again, verse 9 ends by saying that the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Now, I probably need to just begin by, by just noting that, that you might feel a little bit uncomfortable rejoicing in, in the destruction of the ungodly. Like, are we really supposed to do that? Well, well, I think the, and the Bible's clear, that, that justice is a good thing. Justice is a good thing. And I always, I think a great illustration of this is, is that in the book of Revelation, when we stand around the throne of God, when we see our Lord in his full glory and beauty, and then we look down at the judgments that are being poured out on the earth, we will not weep with sadness over what's happening. Revelation says we will worship the Lamb. We will rejoice. When we understand who God is, then we will understand how wicked and and awful sin is. And and we will rejoice in in, in God's purposes being done and in wickedness being judged. So, So God's justice is a good thing. And Peter here assures us that it is coming. So he says that God already destroyed the world of, of one time in the days of Noah. He did it once. And he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and now Peter assures us that he is holding every unbeliever who dies without Christ under punishment for the day of judgment. Every unbeliever will stand before the Lord and the scriptures say that at the great white throne judgment they will give account of every deed they have done or failed to do, and they will receive what they justly deserve. God will judge. So so if you're a Christian, I'd encourage you today that, that no matter how strong evil may seem to be, it will not triumph. 
I, I love how the song, This Is My Father's World, uh, states it. It says, This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. God is going to reconcile all things to himself. He is going to fix it all. Every evil power will be placed under his feet and Christ will hand the kingdom over to his father. So we have hope. Justice is coming. And if you're not saved, I'd urge you to just please see as well that God's judgment is coming. There's no way, there is no way that that you can look at this world rightly without a very clear sense that God is going to judge. And and, and that's not a fun idea, is it? Which is why people try to ignore it. I mean, you know, people want to pretend like it's all about me being happy and doing what I want to do and, and there's no accountability. But, but first, or excuse me, chapter 3 is going to say, you know, and that's what the false teachers were doing. Chapter 3 is going to say that the false teachers want to pretend like, like, like the world is just going to go on and on like it always has forever and ever. God's not going to judge so I can do what I want to do, live how I want to live with no consequence. But, but folks, it doesn't really matter what you want to believe. It doesn't matter really how you want the world to be. You can't create your own reality that destroys reality. God is coming to judge. He's done it before. He proved it definitively in the flood. And he's going to do it again. And and so if you have never come to Christ in salvation, you need to come to grips with the fact that you will be held accountable for every deed. And, And then understand that there is forgiveness in Christ. And 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says that the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So come to him today and be saved, so, so that God will preserve you like Lot and not punish you like Sodom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the assurances of this passage of Scripture. Now, Lord, certainly there are ways in which we can identify with the plight of of Noah, and of Lot. And Lord, we, we thank you uh, for your faithfulness to us, that you will preserve us, and you will be faithful. And we thank you as well for the assurance that you will judge, that you are coming to reconcile all things to yourself. And, and what a wonderful, wonderful day that will be. And so, Lord, there, there are just so many applications, so many various needs that are represented among us today. So God, I pray that your spirit would take the truth of scripture and and that he would apply it to each one according to each individual need. We pray that your spirit would give us faith to believe what your word says is true, that that Lord, we would not just believe it is true for everyone else, but that he would press the truth of scripture deep into our hearts that we would all know this is true for me. And Lord, may he give grace for us to respond rightly uh, to whatever need we have. And so strengthen us this week, Lord, to serve you, to please you, and to fulfill your word 
in Jesus' name.